Please remain standing and flip with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And we'll be reading verse 1 through 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and meet us here, and that you would speak to us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. They tried to make me go to rehab, but I said, no, no, no. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that line, but this is the hook from Amy Winehouse's song, Rehab. The hit single off her album, Back to Black, which came out a long time ago, 2006. Uh, some of you just might be too young to know the name Amy Winehouse, but if you, if you listen to artists like Adele, Lady Gaga, Lana Del Rey, and even Billie Eilish, they're all indebted in some way to Amy Winehouse. Um, and in this song, as the hook suggests, she sings about her refusal to go to rehab for her depression and alcoholism. It's dark subject matter. Uh, all set to this ironically upbeat, catchy tune. Now, anyone who's had a friend or a family member struggle with mental illness knows what hopelessness feels like. Uh, You've felt hopeless as you've spent time with that person, hoping to help, only to realize how deep and dark something like depression can actually be. Uh, The first time a close friend of mine told me that they were suffering from, from clinical depression, uh, my first naive response was, well, what do you think's causing this? Their reply, uh, I don't know, I, I think that's part of what defines depression, though. My next question was even more naive, was, well, how can I help? And their reply, I don't know. So apart from being there, trying to be present with someone who was going through something I couldn't quite map, wrap my mind around, I was totally helpless. But there's another sad layer of of hopelessness and helplessness when you find that your loved one needs potentially professional help, but refuses it. They tried to make me go to rehab, but I said no, no, no. The song is highly biographical because in real life, uh, this was her struggle. She really needed help. Winehouse struggled heavily with substance and alcohol addiction, mental illness, not to mention just having multiple run-ins with the law. Um, She actually did check into rehab in 2008. Uh, She did kick drugs by 2010, but alcohol continued to be a problem, and she died tragically in 2011 of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. And so, 
Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? Uh, We're currently in our series titled Being with Jesus. We're going through the Gospel of John, uh, looking specifically at one-on-one encounters or meetings with Jesus, all to ask this grand question. What does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? We've talked about how how being with Jesus challenges our mental maps and forces us to rethink our reality from the way we perceive things like happiness and success and how to achieve those things all the way to our habits and our lifestyle choices. Last week, we touched on the topic of shame to remember that Jesus comes to us in our shame and then welcomes us without judgment. Today, we turn our attention to healing, specifically looking at the tension between Jesus' real healing power and our free choice. Because there is a tension there. Do you want to be healed is the question we wrestle with today. First, a little history. Uh, We're going to pick things up again at verse 1 here in John chapter 5. If you still have your Bibles open, if not, it'll probably be on the screen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Side note, this site actually still exists in Jerusalem. It was excavated by archaeologists, and you can actually visit it. But historically, the pool of Bethesda was known as this magical place of healing. For more than just the Jews, Uh, theologian and scholar N.T. Wright points out that evidence suggests that pagans, too, regarded it as a sacred site. According to legend and, and what the crippled man in this passage believed, the way the pool worked was that every now and then it would the water would like bubble up. And then whoever was the first person to get into the pool while it was bubbling would be healed of whatever condition they had. Whether or not it actually worked, we don't know enough to say. Uh, But we do know that people from different cultures and backgrounds came to this pool hoping for healing. So everyone was there waiting for something to happen. And this man had already been there a long time. He had been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus knew that he'd he'd been sitting in that spot by the pool for a while, hoping for a chance to get in. Jesus, knowing this, still asks, do you want to be healed? Kind of an odd question, don't you think? I mean, it seems a bit obvious, Jesus. He must want to be healed. He's been crippled for most, if not all, of his life, and he's been waiting at the healing pool. And so I think there are a couple ways we can take this. One way we can interpret it, is that Jesus simply comes across this guy, uh, knows his history because he's Jesus, and then asks out of compassion, do you want to be healed before healing him? But this might seem a little too straightforward. You know, if Jesus already knows what the guy needs, why would he ask such an obvious question? This is not the first time Jesus asks an obvious question before healing someone. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to blind Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? Again, isn't it obvious, Jesus? According to Wright, Jesus' question to him is perhaps quite pointed. Like, do you really want to get better? 
Or are you now quite happy to eke out the rest of your days lounging around here with the feeble excuse that someone else always gets in first? In other words, do you really want to be healed? Or are you just saying it while making the excuse year after year that you never get your turn? Now, this sounds kind of harsh. And it would be if Jesus didn't end up healing him, which he does. But if we take it this way, then Jesus is is getting at the guy's true desire. Like, does he really want to be healed? Or is he content waiting around? Because 38 years is a, is a long time not to, A, find someone to carry him in, or, or B, try something else. And so we can take the question, do you want to be healed, as, well, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on for healing? Whatever way you choose to look at it, the question Jesus asked takes on more weight when we place ourselves in the story. If Jesus came up to you right now and asked you, what do you want me to do for you? Or, do you want to be healed? What would you say? Would you think, well, Jesus, you're Jesus. Isn't it obvious you know what I need? Or, as Jesus asks the question, we might quickly utter, yes, Jesus, yes, I want to be healed. But then, what if he added, well, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting on? For some of us, the answer might simply be, yes, Jesus, I'm waiting on you, and I've been waiting. And I want to acknowledge that for some, waiting on Jesus has been a long, arduous an often painful road of unanswered prayer and dashed dreams. As I write this, a close friend of ours who's a doctor at the children's hospital is processing all the children she prays for who don't end up making it. As I write this, another couple we know is still reeling from the loss of their newborn baby, piled on top of the cancer treatment that the husband has to go through. And so I'm well acquainted with the pain of waiting on Jesus and the pain of unanswered prayer. But at the same time, I still cannot deny the joy and healing that does come from waiting on Jesus, even through and especially through the hardest times. And the triumph of feeling, the triumph and the feeling of being seen that comes with prayer that is Life on this earth is full of tension, and that's, that's reality. But back to the question at hand, do you want to be healed? For some of us, our mouths say yes, while our lifestyle and choices say no. You know, we, we misplace our hope and trust in something else, much like everyone who was waiting at that pool placed their hope and trust in this, this magic. All the while, the one true healer was, was just walking through their midst. Or... We want to have faith, but we just have a hard time trusting Jesus. Or we feel like we've been let down before, and so we have a hard time risking on him. And so then we put our hope and trust in something else. What are you waiting on? Apparently I'm on a song kick today, because I want to read the lyrics from another song. It goes like this. I went to see a healer with that mic strapped to his face. Talked about which habits to surrender and which habits to embrace. And for the next few days or so, I was feeling pretty good, but it didn't fix me. 
I even started volunteering with the local Sacred Heart. We feed the homeless on some weekends. We pick up trash in all the parks. And even though we're cleaning up the whole neighborhood, it didn't fix me. It didn't fix me like I thought it would. I finally found someone that loves me, and to her I will be true. She sees the ways in which I'm ugly and loves me for those reasons too. And even though I'm feeling stronger than I ever thought I could, it still didn't fix me. It didn't fix me like I thought it would. These lines don't come from a Christian song. They come from a song called Didn't Fix Me by a certain favorite band of mine. Um, But this is the voice of our generation. Waiting on something or someone to fix us, only to have that healing never really come. Waiting in vain. As it turns out, thousands of years later, we're still waiting at this pool of Bethesda. So what are you waiting on? What are you hoping will bring you healing? What are you hoping will fix you? Some of us bank everything on our careers. We think that having a secure, well-paying, or respectable job, or if we hit the social landmarks that our family and our peers set for us, it'll finally cure us of our insecurities, either about ourselves or our well-being. We might think it will cure us of our longing for fulfillment and purpose. Or we think it will cure us of that massive weight of expectation that someone else has placed upon our backs. As if once we tick off enough boxes, we'll no longer suffer under that weight. Some of us look to the next self-improvement plan to fix us. We throw ourselves into a new workout plan, a new diet, sign up and train for a marathon or whatever. And these things are great, you know. But if we look to it for healing, it's essentially the same as trying to work on the body in order to fix the soul. Or like trying to get six-pack abs by only doing more upper body which is kind of the wrong target. Some of us look to diversion and distraction, pleasure, grind through the week to party on the weekend, and we'll be okay just so long as we have something to look forward to. Just so long as there's that show to watch at the end of my work day, just so long as there's new content on my phone when I pull it out again, just so long as there's that vacation on the horizon. The trouble with this is that it's not sustainable. You know, when there isn't something to look forward to, once the supply chain of distraction runs out or is cut off, we're left where we're starting. Maybe even worse off because all we've done all along is distracted ourselves. Some of us look to the approval of others for healing, be that in the workplace, among friend groups, social media, through online gaming rankings. And this brings some distraction, it supplies some pleasure, it might even make us feel good about ourselves, and so we think that it's fixing our self-image. But in actuality, it's kind of feeding the problem because we're, we're, we're catering to the very wound in our soul, which is our need to perform and to have the approval of others. And so instead of healing, it ends up exacerbating the problem because we always need more. Some of us even look to, to like religious and Christian things to heal us while missing Christ. We wait for a feeling or we look for fulfillment through tasks and acts of service, mistaking these acts for a relationship with Jesus, the thing that actually fulfills. Imagine if in my marriage we never had date night, we never really talked or had deep discussion about things, we never shared intimacy, but we did the dishes for each other, we cleaned, we did laundry for each other all the time. You know, acts of service like this are really nice, uh, and they're definitely a love language. 
But service itself does not constitute a whole relationship. And sometimes they actually become the thing that we hide behind so that we don't have to face the possible scariness and risk of intimacy. Some of us look to human relationships to fix us. We think that once we find that special someone or even that special friend group or community, again, our insecurities will go away, our fears of being unloved, being misunderstood, loneliness will go away. We just need to find our, our person or our people. We were created for a relationship, yes. But our friends, our loved ones, and our partners were never meant to carry the weight of our healing. They're a part of it, for sure. But the only one who can carry the full weight of our healing is Jesus. And let me just say that if you're looking for or entering into a relationship or a community with the expectation that they will bring you healing from your loneliness or your struggles with your self-image, your future partner will wither and crumble under that weight. It's just not fair to them. Your community will be polluted by your expectation. But this all begs the question, if we're looking for healing in what we know to be dead ends, are we, are we really looking for healing? Or are we looking for numbing? Because they're two different things. You know, are we really hoping to find healing in these things, or are we just looking to find enough distraction to get us to the next day and the next day? There's a big difference between healing and numbing. And I think we mix the two up. You know, this is why we feel good when watching a show, having a drink, reaching a new high score, landing that date or that job. But we're frustrated when Jesus doesn't deliver the same kind of pleasure. We start to think and believe that he was never the answer. I just need to find my thing to be happy, or at least to get by, whatever that thing is for us. For the crippled man, his thing that got him through the day was waiting by this pool that no one knew really worked or not with his line, oh, I have no one to put me in the water. It's not surprising, because as as humans, we're conditioned to take the, the path of least resistance. Trouble is, healing often requires us to do the opposite. Dr. Rob Reimer writes, we are more interested in comfort than we are in wholeness. And this is killing us. At the end of the day, if healing is hard, while numbing and distraction are, are both easy and accessible, then maybe we can just continue to live with our problems. Maybe we can continue to survive with our wounds. Like, the state I'm in right now is not great, but at least it's familiar. Maybe even comfortable. And my issues are definitely issues, but at least I know them. The distraction I'm using isn't bringing me healing, but at least it relieves the pain and I can always seem to get more. Painkillers don't heal. They only dull or numb pain. And if you numb something long enough, you might even forget that it's there. All the while, it continues to do more damage inside of you. On the other hand, antiseptic heals, but it's painful. But we need it. Otherwise, we risk infection and worse problems. One of the most painful things that I had to witness in my short career as a dad was Phoebe in the hospital for heart failure. 
with IVs poked into all of her little limbs, receiving invasive procedures that didn't always yield clear results. But she had to go through it. We had to go through it with her if we really wanted her healing. Healing requires us to take the more difficult path and to go through pain. So back to the passage, verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Wright states again, In a flash, Jesus does what the pool stood for, but what it hadn't been doing very successfully. The man now finds himself launched on the much harder but much more satisfying way of life that goes with no longer being a cripple. So he's healed, and that's great. That's wonderful. That's life-changing. But it means he has to get up and walk. He can't just sit anymore. It's likely that up until this point, his, his livelihood came from begging and receiving. Now he would have to work. In chapter 9, later on, John recounts the episode of Jesus healing a man born blind. We kind of just sang a song about it. Uh, Jesus spits in the dirt, makes mud, and then he rubs it in this guy's eyes, and then he's healed. It's kind of weird. And that happens in the first five verses of the chapter. But in the remaining 36 verses, we see that life actually gets more complicated and more difficult for him after he's healed, before it actually gets better. His parents, we learn, essentially reject him because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. And because he was just healed by Jesus, he's then cast out of the synagogue, which would have been a big blow to his Jewish identity. But what he does gain is something far greater. John writes, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The only way to heal is to accept the challenges and to go through pain, not around it. This is something my therapist has to lead me through a lot. Like, I'll share something that's, that's heavy or painful in a session, and he'll say something like, Brooks, how can you let that pain intensify? And I'd be like, what? I'm, that's what I'm trying not to do right now. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus asks, so what do you want me to do for you? Healing requires our acknowledging, our knowing and then our confronting. Our, our big question for this series has been, what does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? Jesus confronts us with the difficult question, do you really want to be healed? Which, as we now see, is a little more complicated and a little more challenging. Healing requires us to go through, not around pain. We have to go through the storm. Fortunately, it just so happens that this is where we experience Jesus' presence the most. He's always present in the storm. The crippled man finally accepted a change and he received Jesus. The blind man received his sight but ultimately found Jesus. 
And so we're going to end with this final point, the road to healing. Broken up into three parts, three C's for your note-taking convenience. That's choose, confront, and communion. First, choose. Jesus offers a choice. He never forces. But to his question, do you want to be healed? We have to be the ones to say yes. No one is going to say yes for us. And he's not going to force us. Sounds simple enough, but to say yes is loaded. To say yes is to say yes to listening to Jesus. It's to say yes to obeying Jesus. It's to say yes to actually trusting him. And that's risky business. But it's also the nature of faith. You know, we're, we're accustomed to teeter-tottering in this gray area where we really want to say yes to Jesus, but our lifestyle choices show that our trust lies in something else. But we ultimately say yes, truly, with our lifestyle choices. Now, this doesn't mean that, that after this sermon, it's going to be like a complete 100-degree life turnaround immediately. Starts one step at a time. Like for you, in order to listen to Jesus, you might just simply start by adding prayer to your daily rhythm. Or it might mean learning to discern God's voice through the reading of his scripture. Or it might mean setting aside time to actually be silent enough before God to then cultivate an ear for him. A step of obedience might mean showing up to, to your community group when you really don't feel like it. Or confessing when it feels scary and risky. Or forgiving when it just feels wrong and unjust. It's just one little step at a time. But in all these things, we're practicing trust. Two, confront. Reimer writes, our walls must come down and we must let Jesus into our painful places. For he alone is the healer. When you bring your wounds into therapy, what you end up needing to do then is process your past. This is the work of diagnosis. Healing begins with an accurate diagnosis. Imagine if you go to the doctor about a pain you're experiencing, but when the doctor asks you questions about your symptoms, what you've been eating, whatever, you downplay, hide, or just straight up lie and leave things out. It'd be impossible to get good treatment. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know everything about us, but when we choose not to process, not to confront our past, our trauma, our wounds, the roots of them, we are, in essence, choosing to hide. There's that choice again. And in doing so, we're choosing to say no to his question, do you want to be healed? And so on the road to healing, we need to confront we need to process with God and with community. We need to confess to God and to community, not for the sake of judgment, but for the sake of openness and vulnerability and receptiveness. I have a friend, one of my only friends, who calls at all hours of the day, out of the blue for no reason at all. Some of you already know who I'm talking about. Uh, but he'll call and he'll just go right into like updating me about his day. Like today, I took my kids to this and that and he'll share the ups and downs. And then he'll share about the fight that he had with his wife, the moment of anger and frustration that got the best of him. And he was just super short with his kids and then how he needed to repent of that. 
This in turn invites me to do the same. Like I'll share about my own struggles, moments where I sinned against Amanda, yelled at the dog, was impatient with Phoebe or a friend. This is how we live in the light. We create a culture of openness and healthy confrontation and processing. A culture where it's normal to share and to dig deep into our stories and our struggles together in community and before God. Because we lose out on a big part of prayer and intimacy with God if we can't just talk about the messiness in our lives. Which leads us to our third part, communion. The only thing that truly heals is communion with Christ. Community is great. We desperately need real community where openness, safety, and vulnerability are the norm. Therapy is good. Seek healthy Christian therapy. There is such a, bad th- there is such a thing as bad therapy. So if you're looking for a counselor, be discerning and ask an experienced friend to help. These things are all great. I would recommend all of it. I I participate in all of it. But true healing only comes from Jesus, the healer. Psalm 147 states, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Have you noticed that everything that ultimately transforms us, that really reshapes and changes us, they're all long-term relationships of some kind. And there's really no way around it. Even though we're all about efficiency, immediate results, and magical shortcuts. And this is true both in the positive and the negative. Like, good physical health is related to genetics, yes, but it's also a result of long-term regular exercise and healthy eating. Just as poor health is a result of years of built-up bad habits. Fast food on a daily basis, sitting in front of a screen for hours on end. Learning and mastering a musical instrument is the result of a long-term relationship with your instrument. Guided and pastored, if you will, by good teachers. You see where I'm heading? Uh, But there's no substitute for relationship. There's no way around the fact that you just have to spend a lot of alone time with your guitar or your piano, whatever it is, if you want to really make music. In the same way, deep soul-level healing only comes from long-term relationship with Jesus. That's really hard for all of us who are afraid of commitment. Now here's the problem. Reimer writes one more time, God isn't trying to fix us. He wants relationship with us. The truth is, if he fixed us, some of us would walk away from any meaningful and dependent relationship with him because the urgency would be gone. But it's ultimately in relationship with him that we find healing. Now that seems like totally a roundabout route, especially for our speed-obsessed culture, but we are healed. We're made whole simply by being in relationship with Jesus. Relationship is powerful. Think about it. We are the way we are, for better or for worse, in large part due to our parents. We've been shaped by our relationship with them. We are formed by our friend groups and our social circles. Again, that's a relationship that's shaping us. I like to think I've changed a lot since getting married. That's my marriage, a relationship transforming me. 
And so it's relationship with Jesus that brings healing. And this is where we again enter the territory of risk. It's, it's risky trusting in someone you don't see. It's risky trusting in something that doesn't necessarily yield quick results. It's risky trusting in someone who doesn't necessarily speak and direct you with a megaphone. But trust is everything in a relationship. It's risky to strap yourself in and commit to the long haul. But deep, transformative work is slow work. And a lot of times it's slow work because our wounds are much deeper than we think they are. And so risk, we must. It's getting to be a recurring theme, I know. Because if we do not risk, then we end all chances of healing. If we do not enter into the risk of long-term relationship, we cheat ourselves. If we do not risk departing our current familiar territory, even if it means remaining in an unhealthy place, if we do not risk wading through the pain and the discomfort of self-confrontation and openness with those around us, we lose. Because on the other side of this pain and this discomfort is truly the beginning of freedom. And I know that might be just so hard for us to imagine because we have never experienced anything like it before. But that's just it, isn't it? Life with Jesus is supposed to be new. As new as getting up and walking again after being crippled for 38 years. As new as seeing for the first time after being born blind. And so we have to dare to believe, to trust, and to obey. Dare to risk. Dare to draw nearer and nearer, bit by bit, to Jesus. For some of you, that might mean finally making that decision to say yes to Jesus, accepting him into your life as your Lord and Savior, but also as your friend. For others, it might mean just letting him in, past your usual walls and defenses, opening more of yourself up to him. But let Jesus into the dark spaces of your heart. Let him into that hidden life that no one else knows about. Let him abide in you as you abide in him. We've seen instances where Jesus heals quickly and miraculously, both in scripture and in real life. But then there are other times when it's just a slow process. But trust the healer. Trust your doctor. He knows what he's doing. And let him do deep, good work in you. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, you are our healer. And I know that most of the time that's just really hard to believe. And then the rest of the time it's really hard to trust. It's really hard to listen or even begin to learn how to hear. And then it's harder still to then obey. And so, Jesus, first we just ask for mercy. We ask for more of your patience, more of your grace. 
We ask that you would never stop coming after us, that you would never stop inviting us. And we ask that you would always leave the door open for us. But we also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill us with new strength to take some risks. We know you don't force us, but we pray that you would continue to woo us and to beckon us so that we would make the choice ourselves to come after you, to live our lives with you, to follow you, and to be totally open with you, and to, to ultimately let you into our lives so that you can do what you want to do in us. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.